Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and you're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rollins Freeman. Elizabeth, welcome back to you as well. Hey Robert, nice to be here. <clears throat> Last week we talked about the top 10 reasons somebody might choose not to sign a living trust. And I thought this week we'd talk about the top 10 reasons somebody might choose to sign a living trust. All right. You may recall that Duncan, your Duncan, and our office, uh, one of our office mascots, the tall, leggy mascot, um, participated last week. And he's here with us again, so we will test how he feels about trust today as well. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess I want to start, Elizabeth, by saying that um, most people really don't make a mistake if they either choose to sign a trust or choose not to sign a trust. There are very few people for whom it's an obvious yes-no binary decision. Has that been your experience with your clients as well? I think that that's right, Robert. My experience has been really educating clients about how a client's trust will work is top priority if somebody really wants to have a trust. And so you're correct. For most people, it could go either way. But when I have a client who is really not interested in learning about how their trust will work, that's one of the signals that usually indicates to me that maybe a trust plan isn't the best plan. If you've got a trust, it's really important that you understand how it works. You know, I have, I've had it happen so many times that I go through all the pluses and minuses and I get done explaining what the, uh, what the considerations are to a client and they look at me and say, okay, thanks for all that information. Now, should I do a trust or not? Uh, and of course, the answer is it depends. It depends on your comfort level and, and your familiarity with the terms and all sorts of things. And Robert, I think we also frequently get questions at the same time somebody may be sitting in our office wanting to discuss this with uh, some trepidation about how much is the trust going to cost? Well, first of all, we don't sell trusts. So we don't have a prepackaged trust that we're going to tell you we're going to charge $2,000 for or $5,000 for. It doesn't work like that. We need to talk to you about what you want the trust to do during your lifetime and after your death. We need to talk to you about the kinds of things that you want to have flow through the trust as far as your assets go. Those are the kinds of facts we need from you to determine what kind of work needs to be put into the drafting. So when I meet with somebody and the person asks me, how much is the trust going to cost? That often is one of the decision-making factors for the person when they're trying to figure out whether to create one. I try and explain to people, Robert, we don't want them to make a decision based on cost. And in some cases, we charge hourly. In other cases, we try and set a flat fee. But the number one goal we have is if somebody needs a trust and is a good candidate for a trust, we want to try and make that possible for the person, whatever their budget. With that all said, and I agree with everything you've said, of course. With all that said, <clears throat> Elizabeth, let's talk through the top 10 reasons. And we've, we've enumerated these before in our newsletter, in our weekly newsletter. Uh, so we're kind of going back over... Um, uh, plowed land, if you will. But let's work through the top 10 reasons somebody might choose to do a trust. And and that commentary, by the way, I think I predicted last time when you said Duncan really hates trust, uh, and, and that's why he was contributing. I predicted that my dog, Roz, would probably contribute, and she just did. So 
there you go. <clears throat> so the top 10, uh, number 10 reason for most people is actually the number one reason why they would do a trust, and that is they really want to avoid probate. That's oh. what people come to see us about all the time. Oh, brother, probate. Well, here's what I tell people about probate. If you properly fund your trust, meaning if you properly put assets into your trust or have them flow through your trust, you can avoid probate. Now, we've had different episodes, Robert, on our podcast, in our newsletters, where we've talked about the probate process, which is the process to marshal assets that are not in a trust, which is the part of the court oversight component is usually what makes people concerned or afraid of probate. In some cases, people end up having a trust, but they don't put things in it. So they end up having a probate. So yes, a trust can help you avoid probate, but in order for it to help you do that, you need to actually use your trust and do some work. And conversely, if you sign a will, the best written will ever, you know, we, we use a really nice font and, and we, uh, we left justify, not fully justify. The documents are pretty, but it doesn't matter if you've done a will you have not avoided probate. That's the other thing that confuses people often about the whole probate process. Well, probate isn't the monster that most people think it is, which is not to say it's so much fun that everybody ought to rush out and quickly do a probate. But, uh, but it's not as bad as most people think it is, at least. And just remember, if you've got a trust, <clears throat> you can use that device to avoid probate. But in order for that to help you avoid probate, you actually have to make sure assets yep. flow through your trust. Number nine on the reasons people might sign a trust, uh, we've tagged as privacy. If you really, really want privacy, uh, maybe a trust is a little more private because there won't be court filings. Truth is... The probate filings are not that informative. You can go down to the probate court and look up famous people's wills and and uh, and try to see what their estates were. There are actually a few famous people who have died in the Tucson area, so you could go looking for some Tucson famous people, and you won't learn very much. But with the trust, the privacy is a little bit stronger. Number uh, eight on our list of reasons to, to sign a trust is to make life easier for your executor. And I use executor advisedly. You want to tell us what that person's title really is? And... Well, in Arizona, Robert, we use the term personal representative. That is what the Arizona <coughs> law refers to. Many people across the country, though, or may, may be more familiar with the term executor or executrice. So what it's important for people to understand is if you've properly funded your trust, so if your house is titled to your trust or there's a beneficiary deed that transfers your house to your trust, your accounts are titled to your trust or they flow through the trust on your death, that can often save the person who is going to be doing some heavy lifting a lot of transactional work with banks, with title companies, if what happens is when you die, things are already consolidated in your trust, it can make the administrative function of your personal representative's job a bit easier. And of course, when they're acting in the trust, their title is trustee. So it may be that you have made so much things so much easier for your executor that there isn't one, that you don't have to have anybody fill the personal representative role at all. But they're still a trustee. They still have to do some things. It's still not super easy. There are things they have to do. 
we have had people who told us that they expected to go to their mom's funeral and take home a check. And that doesn't usually happen. Um, there are some, some documents that need to be prepared and tax files, filings that need to be done. And there's, there's other stuff to do. But at least it's a little bit easier, at least. Uh, number seven on our list of reasons to sign a trust is if you have complicated assets. Nobody thinks they have complicated assets. Everybody thinks, oh, no, this is just no big deal. Yeah, I do own a boat and, oh, yeah, a vacation cabin on the lake in Michigan. And, uh, oh, and I do have these investments. Uh, I, I do own one one-hundred-thousandth interest in the Empire State Building. Um, which is one of my favorite illustrations because we actually had that happen in a case where they had a very small sliver of an interest in the Empire State Building that complicated the administration of the estate. Or I have a copyright, or I have some guns, or the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, and, it's, and I, I guess I would say that complicated assets, it's in the eye of the beholder, but it's, it's not just about whether your assets are complicated, but how many different kinds of assets you have, because each kind of asset has its own complication. Copyright, as you say, you have to do some things. Airplanes, you have to do some things. So if you have one from each of those columns, then that can make a trust a, a more efficient way to administer your estate. Particularly, Robert, if one of the assets you may have is an interest in something like a fam family business, for instance. Right. That there are some pretty clear terms around the transfer of that interest, how it can be transferred, who can receive an interest. That's the kind of thing that doing through a trust plan can often be helpful, provides a little bit of time and space to the administration that um, might not otherwise occur through a probate. Um, and, and related to complicated assets are complicated distribution plans. So our number six choice for why you would sign a trust is if you do have complicated uh, plans for how to distribute the money. Oh, I want $10,000 to go to each of my grandchildren, and I also want $50,000 to my favorite charity, and I also want, um, every time you say, and I also want, you have complicated the structure, made it harder to use beneficiary designations or or uh, probate alternatives and made yourself a better candidate for a living trust. This is also true, Robert, when, again, you, you have something like a family business, you have an interesting kind of an asset or an interest that's bringing in income, for instance, and you really care about how that income is sheltered and distributed, oftentimes a trust can be a great vehicle for that. Number five on our list is if you have real estate in more than one state, this actually Maybe we could bump that up the list a little bit. That's one that makes you a really excellent candidate for a living trust. And people who get finicky when we mention the word probate tend to go bonkers when we mention the phrase ancillary probate. <laughs> what is an ancillary probate, Robert? Well, that's if, if we have, say, uh, your house here in Arizona and the uh, rental house in California that you left in your name after you moved from California to Arizona, and you have that um, cabin on the lake in Michigan, well, we're going to have to do a probate in Arizona to transfer your Arizona real estate and probably an ancillary probate in California and another one in Michigan. You just made yourself an excellent candidate for a living trust because we can avoid not just one probate, but three probate proceedings. I kind of picked California on purpose because I like to pick on California in this probate area. 
I said very blithely, probate is not the monster that people think it is. Well, in California and in some other states, um, it still is kind of that monster. And so you really want to avoid probate if you have real estate in multiple states, one of which is California. Our next item, number four on our list of why to sign a trust, or if you have children who are professionals who might be subject to creditors' claims. I guess I could say professionals or really bad drivers. Those are the two most common kinds of claims that, uh, that might be levied against your children. Oh, wait, maybe bad marriages as well. Malpractice, all different kinds of liabilities. So this is true, Robert, and sometimes I will meet with a client. The client will say, listen, I'm in a very high-risk profession. I don't actually have creditors, but I have people who are just waiting for me to make a mistake so they can sue me. What can you do for me? And for those people, that's a difficult question to answer, right? Because they're asking me to do something with their money. However, if that person's parent comes in to see me and says, Elizabeth, I happen to have a son who is an anesthesiologist and who is really in a high-risk profession. I want to make sure that my distribution to him can be protected from creditors or, or a lawsuit. I can help that parent with how that distribution can be made to the child. It's much easier to do that way than, say, for instance, have the, have the doc in our office trying to figure out how to strategize asset protection. So professional children or just wealthy children who would benefit from some sort of asset protection, that makes you a good candidate for a trust. But so do minor children. And that can be not just your minor children, but your grandchildren or anybody you intend to leave money to. Uh, you're probably talking about a trust for their benefit anyway, even though maybe not everything is going to be in trust. But the cost of doing a will and powers of attorney and going through the probate process begins to resemble the cost of doing a trust for your minor children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews or whomever. And remember, Robert, for those folks who've got minor children in their life, in whatever capacity, we try and remind folks that, you know, it may be that at the time you die, the distribution going to the minor may be $10,000, maybe $15,000. It may not be the 150000 you imagined. And there can be some flexibility created for the trustee so the trustee can create something like a UTMA account or another device so you don't have a complex trust developed for a for a younger, younger beneficiary. I try and explain to people, gosh, it would so much better to use a trust for this kind of thing because it's going to give the trustee discretion about how to handle that distribution down the road. They're not going to be trapped into doing a conservatorship for a child or, or some other, you know, some kind of administrative work that they um, would really need to spend time and money on proceeding. I'm very fond of saying, um, I've used this expression today in this podcast, that probate is not the monster that most people think it is, but conservatorship sometimes is that monster. So it'd be nice to avoid a conservatorship for your minor children or grandchildren or beneficiaries. In the same kind of way, uh, still focusing on the beneficiaries, our number two reason to sign a living trust is that one of your beneficiaries or more than one of your beneficiaries are what in the law we call spendthrifts, people who are not good with money and who need someone else to manage their money for them. They might not be minor children, they might not have any um, uh, medical condition, they're just not good money managers and you want to make sure someone else keeps them from misspending their money. 
That makes you a good candidate for a living trust. And that's one of the reasons, Robert, that I see time and time again people come into our office. They want some protection of funds so that the flow of funds can be consistent. They want a child or um, somebody in their life who'd be getting the distribution to have autonomy, but they also want to make sure that that person doesn't blow all the money on a Ferrari as soon as they get a check. And keeping in the, with the theme of looking at the beneficiaries to decide if you're a candidate for a living trust, our top reason for doing a trust is if you have one or more children or beneficiaries who have a disability, particularly if they're on public benefits. Then we're talking about special needs trusts, a kind of a special, specialized subcategory of trusts. Um, but you just made yourself a really excellent candidate to have a trust if you need to protect public benefits or protect the money for someone who is, uh, has a medical condition particularly and is unable to manage money or unable to have funds and still qualify for public benefits. Well, Robert, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think this is an important podcast for people. We want to remind everybody who's listening today, the discussion about whether to have a trust is one of the reasons to get into an attorney's office. And more times than not, Robert, when I have somebody walk in who is not sure whether to create a will or use a trust, we spend that initial appointment talking about what may or may not make them a good candidate for trust. You shouldn't have to feel like you know the answer to that. That's the kind of thing to get legal advice about. Absolutely. I, I uh, start many of my first interviews with clients with, tell me about your kids. And, uh, and that's what I'm looking for. I want to hear, oh, my kids are very successful and they, they're not fabulously wealthy, but they know how to manage money. Or, well, I do have one daughter who's not very good with money or a daughter who is a, a doctor or something. I want to know a little bit more about the, uh, the, the, the logic of doing a trust for that client. And in each case, it's very personalized. It's very much a cost-benefit analysis for every client. We'll tell you the pluses and minuses, but ultimately the decision is yours. Very rarely do we say, no, we will not prepare a trust or we won't do anything for you unless you do a trust. Uh, when I say very rarely, I mean never. We just don't ever say that. It's not ever the right answer, except in the most extremely remote, unimaginable circumstances. I hope, we hope that these two related podcasts this week and last week have helped you understand how living trusts might work within your estate plan. And as Elizabeth says, the best way to find out is to schedule an appointment with us or an estate planning attorney in your community to talk through the positives and negatives of trust planning. Oh, and by the way, they will vary state to state. What we say about Arizona will not necessarily apply in, I've already hinted, California is different, uh, and, and a lot of other states have, uh, have stronger or weaker arguments to make as well. You've been listening to Elder Law Issues. I'm Robert Fleming, one of the partners at Fleming & Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm, and, uh, and you've been hearing us talk, me and Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of the other partners at Fleming and Curdy. We hope that you will join us again next week, and we'll talk at you then.